This podcast is brought to you by Langley & Benack, a full-service South and Central Texas law firm that delivers the highest quality legal advice coupled with exceptional client service. From our main office in San Antonio, we provide the resources of a national firm while maintaining close ties to the communities in which we practice. To learn more, please visit us at langleybenack.com. That's langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Today's episode is part five of a five-part series on oil, gas, and energy law. The series is hosted by Clinton Butler. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in the Langley and Benack podcast are for information purposes only and should not be considered legal or professional advice for any particular situation. The presentation of this informational content does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website at www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600. Today's episode will focus on the executive right, which if you remember from episode one is one of those sticks that makes up the bundle of sticks mineral interest. The podcast today will focus on how the executive right has evolved over the years from being a right dearly sought by surface owners to becoming a burden no one in their right mind should bear. Today's guest is a very special guest for me. He's worn a lot of different hats in my life. He's a dear friend, a legal mentor, a business partner, and most importantly, my dad. Richard Butler is a longtime litigator in the state of Texas for firms such as Souls and Wallace and then for Langley and Manac. And in fact, it was dad's journey into oil and gas which has led me here. I chose dad as my interviewee for this topic because we've been involved in several large executive rights cases, including one that I consider to be a top five executive rights case in the state of Texas, Texas Outfitters. Today, I'll try to hope to recreate any one of the countless conversations that Dad and I have had on this topic while sitting in his office or at his ranch house in Carn City. It's very possible this episode could take longer than the rest or could possibly devolve into us just discussing the upcoming Baylor Bears football season or his granddaughters. So with that, please join me in welcoming to the podcast, my father, Richard Butler. Dad, hello. Hi, how are you, Glenn? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for joining us on the last of the Oil and Gas and Energy podcast. So today I wanted us to discuss the executive right. And, you know, maybe it's, you know, the fact that I kind of entered into the oil and gas practice on a big executive rights case or that we were involved uh, heavily in the Texas Outfitters case, which I consider to be a, a seminal executive rights case in Texas. But, you know, executive right law has always been, you know, I think my favorite, you know, topic or section of oil and gas law, because I, I think it, it generally breeds the most interesting types of oil and gas cases. You know, you, you get a lot of different, you know, elements and potential intrigue in these potential cases. And, you know, I, th I think it really, you know, has the potential for, you know, colorful characters, as we certainly saw in Texas Outfitters, and, and really interesting fact scenarios. And, you know, as we'll see, the law on executive right really has a wide lane to work with in, you know, what is and is not uh, a breach of an executive duty, because the courts 
you know, as we stand right now, really haven't left us with a lot of guidance as to what is and isn't an executive breach. You agree with that? I do. The uh, <clears throat> the Texas Supreme Court has, as a matter of fact, has specifically stated that we don't have a bright line that we've drawn in the sand and said this is a, what the duty exactly is or this would constitute a breach of it. And so it's left, to me, still a great deal of uncertainty out there as to what the executive can and cannot do. And the, the most recent proclamation on the issue with Texas Outfitters uh, it has expanded, I think, even more than Leslie did the uh, the liability or potential liability of a executive rights holder. And I think it's probably also <coughs> expanded the uncertainty that goes along sure. with the executive right. Is it still does even Texas Outfitters still expressly does not draw a bright line or give you some kind of bright definition? And lawyers, especially lawyers who are assisting landowners in lease negotiations, things of that nature, are uh, somewhat desirous of a, of a real clear path that they can take when they're negotiating and when they're representing an executive rights holder. And, you know, I want us to kind of dive into the Texas Outfitters facts and look back at some of the seminal executive duty cases and how the law is, you know, really, I think, almost 180 degrees evolved in the last 15, 20 years. Uh, but before we do, you know, give us, give us kind of your history in dealing with executive rights cases. Okay, the first one I ever had was in the... Um, early part of my career, I probably was not a five-year lawyer at that time, I represented a small oil and gas company that was acquiring leases <coughs> in Frio County. And uh, they encountered someone that wanted to lease property. They had two, 3,000 acres. Uh, and this individual had a small mineral interest in that land, but he owned the executive rights to the entire 3,000 acres. And um, he didn't really want to lease property, but he uh, negotiated a deal that basically you, uh, provided for very minimal bonus, way below market value on the bonus, and also just the bare minimum royalty. I think it was a one-eighth lease, and at the time, you know, you get more than that. Where the uh, the le the uh, lessor said he wanted his money was in a uh, oh a large surface damage payment. Uh, the surface damages were estimated or were proclaimed to be and stated to be in the lease something like three or three hundred thousand dollars per well. And this was regardless of how much land was actually taken for the well site, the value of the land, where it was, anything. It was just $300,000 per well site. And uh, I thought it was a clear violation of the Portwood versus Buckley's suit. Now, of course, this guy didn't come to me until after the, the company didn't come to me until after they had already secured the lease and had been sued. And uh, the, the uh, non-executive uh, mineral interest holders were contending that that was a disguised bonus. 
and uh, wanted their money. Luckily, we were able to settle that thing. Uh, not the oil company client of mine did not have to pay, but the the executive rights holder did. Before we get into kind of more of your history, you know, let's let's reframe for the audience. What is the executive duty, and how does one go about breaching that duty? Well, the executive right is, of course, the right to negotiate and sign oil and gas leases on behalf of mineral interests. And that right is can be owned separate and apart from the actual mineral interests that are being leased. And in fact, before some of the decisions that we're going to get to here today, such as like Leslie and then certainly Texas Outfitters, you know, surface owners, you know, if, if the mineral interest and the surface were owned by separate people, if you own the surface of Black Acre and I own the minerals of Black Acre, surface owners actively sought out to get the executive rights for, sure. for those interests, even if they didn't have any of the bonus or the royalty or, you know, ingress, egress or delay rental, they would seek out the executive right. Yeah. Why is that? Well, whether they owned any mineral interests other than the executive right or not, they wanted as a surface owner to have the maximum amount of control over the access to the surface, uh, to be able to put provisions in leases that would provide for protection of their cattle, their wildlife, uh, their property, the surface, make sure that the, uh, the lease was as protective as it could be for the surface of the property. It's, it's a natural thing to want to do if you're a landowner. You know, the surface owner, you know, having all of the executive rights and either little to no bonus and royalty interest, and the mineral owners having all of the royalty and bonus interest, but none of the surface or executive rights, created a natural conflict. Yeah, it is a conflict, and it's, uh, the court's been wrestling with that to try to understand exactly how to balance that. Initially, uh, the court so I think the, the case I always thought was a seminal case really establishing what that duty was, was the Mangus case. And when Clinton Mangus uh, uh, had a, executive rights over not only his own interests but a bunch of other people's and uh, went to great lengths to, uh, to make sure that he's the one that made the money off the deal, off the oil and gas lease. So how does an executive right owner you know, first of all, what duty do they owe to anyone? And secondly, how do they go about breaching that duty? Well, the initial duty was spelled out in the Slater versus Smith case was that they owed a duty of utmost fair dealing to protect the amount of the grantor's royalty. And this duty arose only with, in conjunction with the execution of the lease. So if you as executive rights holder uh, actually negotiated and then executed a lease, uh, you had a duty, it said, to utmost, uh, of utmost fair dealing to ensure that their royalty interest was protected, I guess you could say, to make sure they got a fair royalty in the lease and that kind of thing. And Schleter was really kind of the first case that, yeah, that the courts the, came out and addressed this duty, you know, real specifically. And that was in 1937. and. And it really didn't get much play after that until Mangus. And Mangus came along in 1984. And, and what was the holding out of the Mangus with regards to what sort of duty an executive rights owner owed to, uh, to his non-executives? Well, I think they basically held that it creates a 
quasi-fiduciary duty between the executive and the non-executive interest holders. Uh, and that duty was to uh, exercise good faith and to ensure that the executive rights holder does not obtain for himself or herself benefits under the lease that's made that are not secured for the non-executives. In other words, I can't make a deal, make a lease that I get better terms on, I get more payment or higher royalty or whatever it might be uh, than the non-executives. So if I own the executive rights over, over my mineral interest, I sign a lease and that lease is effective to lease my interest, but also to lease your interest, right? Right. And so I can't sign a lease that says, okay, you're going to pay Clinton Butler a one-fourth royalty, but you're going to pay Richard Butler a one-fifth royalty, right? You can't do that. You can't get more bonus, and you can't get what I would call a disguised bonus or a disguised royalty, which is getting extraordinary surface damage payments or something of that nature that that is not going to be shared by the other people. So if I own the executive rights and a portion of the royalty and the surface of the property, and you own, you know, you're, you don't have any executive rights, I got executive rights over you, but you own a royalty and a bonus, I couldn't say, okay, you know, one-eighth, you know, in a market rate, one-fourth royalty world, I couldn't say, you know, $10 an acre bonus, one-eighth royalty, but $100,000 per acre surface damages, right? That would be highly suspect. Right. And Probably so, a violation of the duty. Okay. And so what's, uh, what's kind of the next big case that, that came out with regards to the duty to lease or, you know, potential breach well, of a duty that, uh, that was out there, you know, before we get into the Texas Outfitters case? I think the uh, Bass case, Henry Bass in 2003, was the first time that I can think of that the Supreme Court really spoke on this subject of is there a duty to lease? Does refusing to lease property by the non-executive constitute a breach of that quasi-fiduciary duty? And I'll explain later why I call it a quasi-fiduciary duty. And uh, in that case, uh, Bass owned a place called La Paloma, who actually been on the place, and it's Lee Bass's uh, great quail hunting property uh, down in uh, uh, somewhere like in Brooks County. And uh, he uh, was approached by Exxon, and Exxon wanted to have an option to lease the property for oil and gas exploration. and. They needed to do some seismic. So they did seismic work on it. The other mineral interest owners got wind of this and felt like, well, why aren't you leasing? Why aren't you leasing? And they never they couldn't get Bass leased. Apparently, there was some indication that Bass had communicated to them, I'm not going to lease uh, because I don't want to, uh, unless you sell me your royalty interest. If you'll sell me your royalty interest, I'll go ahead and lease the place, but I'm not going to do it till then. So there was at least some evidence in this case that Bass was basically putting a gun to their head and saying, look, either you're going to make money off selling me your royalty interest at pennies on the dollar, presumably, or you're not going to get any royalty at all because I ain't leasing. He didn't indicate that, and the fact of the matter is he didn't lease. And so they sued 
and uh, they allege that there was a breach or an implied covenant to develop a property, uh, which Supreme Court made pretty short work of, said there is no such implied covenant, and if there is going to be a covenant to develop on the part of the executive rights owner, it has to be spelled out in the deed or some other document that exists between the parties. Uh, that did not exist. The other element of their cause of action was a breach of the Mangus fiduciary duty, that this was a, uh, a, a breach of that duty and that that duty included uh, a duty to lease the property uh, when a reasonable lease was presented. The Supreme Court analyzed that in Bass and basically said there was no exercise of the fiduciary, I mean, no violation of the fiduciary duty because the executive right was never exercised. That to exercise that right, he would have had to make a lease. There was no lease. He didn't lease it to himself like Mangus did. He didn't lease it to anybody. So there could be no breach of that fiduciary duty. I think most Texas oil and gas lawyers at that time considered a bright line had been drawn. That if you make a lease as an executive rights holder, you have to do it fairly and, and give the same benefits to everybody and not take advantage of it for yourself. But there was no breach of that duty if you didn't lease. I thought, as most I think, oil and gas practitioners did at the time, that's it. That's the end of the story. And there were a couple of three Court of Appeals cases that came out subsequent to Bass that seemed to confirm that, including the Havlinka case, which I believe came out of the uh, Amarillo Court. So it appeared to be well settled at that time that there is a duty and it applies to conduct you, uh, your conduct as an executive when you make a lease but there isn't a duty to make a lease. And so at that time, after Bass, it was pretty clear, or at least it was clear in the minds of oil and gas practitioners, that the executive had the almost unfeathered right to say no to any lease and couldn't be held liable for it because in order to be held liable for a breach, he first had to sign a lease. If there is no lease, there can be per se no breach, right? That's what it appeared from, and, reading, from reading Bass. Right. And that's what the law was going into the facts of Texas Outfitters. That's right. Correct. And so that's, that's you know, now I think would be a good time for us to kind of dive into Texas Outfitters. And then, you know, after talking about Texas Outfitters, we'll talk about how the law basically flipped on its head in the middle of this entire ordeal with Texas Outfitters. So... You know, Texas Outfitters, it starts in 2002 when uh, a company founded by a gentleman named Frank Fakovic called Texas Outfitters buys the, the surface and some, some interest, mineral interest in Blackacre from the Carter family, right? That's correct. And so kind of, you know, give us the basic bones of how okay. that worked out. Uh, Frank was going to develop this property as a white-tailed deer hunting property. And it was, it's a beautiful piece of property down in uh, South Texas. And he was going to do that, you know, have hunting rights and build cabins and things like that. That was how he was going to make his living. And uh, 
he negotiated with the Carter family uh, and he received a small mineral interest. I, I can't remember the percentage, but it was very small. But he received the uh, executive rights over the retained mineral rights or mineral interests for the Carter family. There was another half of the mineral rights that were outstanding and that belonged to the Hines family, uh, basically out of Charlotte area. And so going into this transaction, the Carter family owns 100% of the surface of Black Acre. That's correct. And 50% of its minerals. That's my recollection. The other 50% is owned by this third party Hines family that's got no other relation to this property other than a 50% mineral interest. That's right? correct. That's correct. Okay. And I believe Texas Outfitters bought approximately like 4% of the bonus and royalty interest, ingress, egress, and delay rental right, but they bought all 50% of the executive rights that the Carters owned in that property That's at the time of the transaction. And, and the motivation of Texas Outfitters in doing that was they were going to invest a great deal of money in this white-tailed deer operation and wanted to make sure that any kind of leasing that was done or uh, would would be have kind of protections for the surface interest that he felt he needed to make sure he could have a viable operation. That point or that uh, executive rights was negotiated very hard with the Carters, uh, and, and he specifically said, "I'm not going to buy this unless I can get that." They agreed to it. Uh, apparently, informed him that there had many mineral interests out there, and he drilling or anything else in many, many years, and they didn't anticipate there would be, so it was no big deal to them, the Carter family. Sure. But it was Frank, and he didn't know, you know, what might happen, and so uh, he, he made that deal. He bought that interest, bought the ranch, made it, it, spent hundreds of thousands, if not millions, in improvements. And I want to go back to that fact, because that's going to be, that's going to be the central key to the, you know, Greek tragedy element of this entire story mm -hmm. for, for Kovic, is that he negotiated and he paid extra consideration specifically for the Carter's entire executive rights in the property, right? That's right. I mean, the Carter's were willing to sell him, you know, at the agreed amount, his executive rights over his 4% of the bonus and the royalty, no problem. But Frank wanted, Texas Outfitters wanted all of those executives because at the time, in 2002, you know, Bass is the law. And, yes. you know, Bass is saying you're well, getting... A, I don't know if I'd say that Frank was aware of Bass right. at the time. He, he thought, if I have those executive rights, I can control the leasing. And that now, was, he may or may not have thought he was under an obligation to lease. I, I don't know, but that was that was his thinking. But then that was and, a commonly held belief. And that's the belief. thinking of right. all people who were buying executive rights at that time. They felt it was important and needed to have it. Now the um, so so the, he he buys it in two thousand two and he just pours money into it, right? For pours money. Whitetail is like a not only just a. I think he's got a breeding operation out there. He's got a big game hunting operation out there, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars have been spent on this property. Is that, that about right? At least. Yeah. Plus all his waking hours. Yeah. Hey, you know, <laughs> working just obsessive a, you know, over it. He, he was a uh, perfectionist when it came to that stuff. The next thing that happens, he was approached about leasing this place at some point in time 
the money wasn't very good. <clears throat> this was pre, uh, you know, Eagle for Shell breaking loose. And he, he wasn't interested, and I think he discussed it with the Carters, and they said, yeah, that's fine, that's not a, doesn't sound like a good deal. The next thing that happens is, uh, I think the Carters were approached by a company that wanted to lease the property, and uh, were offering like 1750 an acre, 25% bonus, which Kind of going right at that time in Frio County. And this is El Paso oil and gas. It was El Paso. And so uh, that's kind of the beginning of it. And uh, at the time, uh, he wasn't that thrilled about it, thought, and, you know, was conferring with people about, well, what what kind of money can be realized out of a lease like that, and had seen the prices of uh, Eagleford properties just escalate dramatically. You know, uh, I know speaking from my own point, uh, in Carnes County, uh, we started off, uh, after the first Eagleford wells were struck in Carnes County, I think they, the, Leases were maybe $500 an acre. We're talking 2009, 2010. Yeah, late eight, early nine. Mm -hmm. And the prices crept up, they started going up. The royalties were normally uh, uh, one-fifth. They were not paying 25% mm -hmm. on anything that I knew of. And then as time went by, the royalties upped to one-fourth and the prices escalated. And by the time it was over, which is even after, I think, uh, Texas Outfitters lease issue came up, the prices in Carnes County escalated to ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000 an acre. They just got And, uh, you know, with drilling commitments and everything else. And so, Tax Outfitters was looking at it from the standpoint of if we just wait, it's going to do that too. Yeah. And, uh, you know, is it a gamble? Yes, but there's a pretty good chance those prices will reach that kind of an amount. But one thing had occurred that is an incredibly important factor in this story is that if you remember that third party family, the Hines, mm -hmm. that owned that other 50%, the real important factor that really hamstrung Frank's ability to negotiate on these minerals was the fact that the Hines family had accepted El Paso's offer. Yes, the Hines family accepted El Paso's offer on their 50% of the minerals on the property. And, uh, you know, that I was somewhat surprised that El Paso would make that deal without having assurance they could secure the lease on the other 50%. They did, and I, I don't know whether they did it, and their thought was, well, if somebody else gets it, we can partner up on the wells or whatever, like, or, or one of us buy the other one out. I don't know what their thinking was. Mm -hmm. But uh, they, uh, they got that lease from the Hines family and then approached the Carters, and the Carters became instantly enamored with that and they wanted, and they let Texas Outfitters know they wanted to make that lease at 1750 acre, 25 percent. 
And the Heinz lease, even though Heinz owned no surface, the Heinz owned lots of great hunting land themselves and had decent, I wouldn't call it great, but decent, you know, protection language in that lease. I think there were two or three paragraphs with surface protection. If it had been their own property that they were leasing, I suspect <laughs> the Heinz may have been a little more stringent. And and so for Texas Outfitters, that lease form that the Heinz signed was, was, was not going to be sufficient. was not adequate. And the uh, Texas Outfitters became aware of a group of royalty owners in that area that was negotiating with El Paso and had actually reached an agreement on everything, including surface protection provisions, because a lot of those other ranchers also had hunting operations and wanted adequate surface protection. And so Texas Outfitters were kind of twisting in the wind. Do we sign this deal? Do we wait? And see if the prices escalate, or do we, you know, what do we do? And at that time, Bass was the law in Texas, and there was no obligation to lease. And even if there was an obligation to ultimately lease, I think everybody understood that the surface hunter, I mean the executive rights hunter, had the absolute right to negotiate the terms of the lease and the way they saw fit, as long as they didn't get more for themselves than someone else. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, what happened is some property in that area was drilled by someone else. That property turned out to be unproductive, or at least marginally productive. And El Paso and most everybody else in the area started pulling in their they're they're constricting offers, you know constricting the offer. their offers or withdrawing them or whatever now subsequent to the uh that discussion uh texas Frank frankfurt claimed he was never contacted directly by el paso the only contact been made to him was through the carters and he goes i don't know why they're contacting the carters they're not they're not the owners of the executive rights. But subsequently, uh, several months later, uh, Fukovic did meet with a uh, representative of El Paso, and as, as the evidence in the case was, uncontroverted evidence in the case was that El Paso told him they would lease the Carter interest and his interest. And Fukovic said, well, I don't want to lease my interest, but I'll lease the Carter interest on this deal you're making. And El Paso said, nope, we have to have your interest too, or we're not going to make the lease. And so that's an important point that we're really going to come back to when we talk about, you know, the court's ultimate holding in this case, is that, you know, when we were discussing, you know, the duties that the executive owes, it's a duty not to... Um, put his interest above that or to get a greater benefit than he achieves for his non-executive, right? Right. And what it isn't, though, or what the courts have, you know, said continuously is that this is not a true fiduciary duty. Can you explain, you know, what the difference between this, you know, as we've talked about it many times in your office, quasi-fiduciary duty that the executive rights came with 
as opposed to like a traditional fiduciary duty, like an attorney-client relationship or trust, or trust or trustee or beneficiary. The, in the um, true fiduciary relationship, the uh, fiduciary holder is obligated to sub to subjugate or to put his interest behind the interest of the fiduciary that he owes, or the person he owes the fiduciary to. In the trustee words, must. Yeah, yeah, the trustee has to subserve his interest with those of the person he owes the you know, the, the the fiduciary to. Right. The court had specifically said several times, including. It repeated it in Leslie, believe it or not, that they still hold that, that uh, that there is no obligation to completely ignore your own interests and always put the interests of the non-executives ahead of yours. And so, uh, Fukovic, and, and no thing they had ever said, that I ever heard, they had never said that the executive owner has an obligation to others regarding his own interests, not the interests of a non-executive. Like if, if the executive owner has executive rights to his own interests as well as the interests of others, I'd never heard anybody say that the executive rights holder has an obligation to uh, do with his own interests only what's in the interest of the others. In other words, that duty, that, that duty to you know, make sure that you're not achieving more than your non-executive, that duty really just applies to that interest that you're holding executive rights over to someone else. I would say that I thought that it also extended this way. All right, let's say uh, Texas Outfitters has Carter interests that they have executive rights over and Texas Outfitters' interests, which they have executive rights under. I don't believe, I think it would be a violation of the fiduciary duty to negotiate a lease, if Texas Outfitters negotiated a lease that provided the Carter's got 1750 an acre and he got 10,000 an acre. Mm -hmm. I think that would be securing a benefit for yourself that you're not sharing with the non-executive owners. So I don't think I think that under Mangus and the other decisions would have been a violation of that duty. But, uh, but, but the question until, is, yeah. since if the oil and gas company comes and says, you've got to lease yours too or I'm not going to make this lease with the Carter interest, what do you do? Right. Do, are you obligated to lease your own interest at, at an amount you don't want to do? an amount you don't want to accept in order to keep from violating that standard. And so Fakovic is given the ultimatum, it's either all or it's nothing. Yes. And he chooses nothing, right? Hey, well, he did at that time. Yeah. And so after that, that's when the Carters get their back up and decide that, you know, I think it, it started off with kind of a series of demand letters. There they didn't were, jump right into a lawsuit, yeah. right? But there was a expression of dissatisfaction, then demand letters. And uh, at that time, Leslie was pending before the Supreme Court. And so let's let's talk about... But Bass was the law. Right. So let's talk about Leslie because you okay. know, we've, we've, we've kind of glanced at it a few times. And so Leslie, in my opinion, 
you know, in my opinion, it overruled and overturned Bass, but the court doesn't come out and say it. Give us, you know, a brief synopsis of what the facts in Leslie were and, you know, how the court, you know, what the court's ruling in Leslie was. Well, there was some complication to it, but in that case, the executive rights owner was developing this property that had purchased uh, as a high-end subdivision. And what they did was they put some deed restrictions in place that said you can't drill on this property. So basically, whenever somebody, you know, went and purchased a, uh, well, let me back up, a, uh, a developer, Blue Green, I believe, yes. uh, buys, you know, thousand acres or something from Miss Smith or Ms. Leslie. And it's only a yeah. couple of thousand acres. And so they bought it and Leslie retained the, the, the royalty and the bonus on that property, right? And All or some of it, I can't right, remember. Right, a portion of it. And then uh, the developer, Blue Green, got the executive rights. That's correct. correct. And so whenever Blue Green would sell lots, you know, off of this developed property, there were restrictions in place f that attached to the sale of those lots, which said you can't drill on this property. That's right. right. And, you know, that makes sense because they're developing like a suburban high-end neighborhood here around this lake and stuff, right? Yeah, it was somewhere up in the uh, oh the shale up near Fort Worth. Barnett, right? Yeah, the Barnett Shale. Right. And uh, I don't know if the time at the time the sale was made, it probably hadn't occurred yet. The mm -hmm. Barnett Shale was not being developed, but the the developers, the way they were going to make money off the place, of course, was developing these lots and selling them. So they had, they had created this uh, deed restriction. And it applied to all the lots. And the, uh, you know, the one thing that always struck me was c could those properties have been produced by drilling off-site and ended up still getting the production out of it, which would have satisfied the royalty mineral insurance. You could actually have done a lease, I assume, There'll be a no surface use lease. Uh, I've done some of those myself. But the, the long and the short of it, the mineral interest owners, the non-executives, brought suit against the executive interest owners saying that they had violated the uh, fiduciary duty by not leasing and by you know, setting up these roadblocks. they basically like foreclosed on yeah. the ability, not not the ability to lease. You're not saying you can never lease. All you're saying can't is develop. I can't drill here. And what they're saying is with the no ability to put rigs on these properties and everything, it, it foreclosed the prospect of getting a lease, period. And uh, like I said, I don't know whether or not with the horizontal drilling techniques at that time they could have developed it. Now, I'm certainly good at it, but back then, they, they, there was no, the uh, horizontal drilling had not advanced the stage where they could reach under large tracts of property without ever going on it. And so the Texas Supreme Court, you know, initially it goes up to the fourth court, I mean to a, a, an appellate court, intermediate right. court of appeals, and they say bass, yes. right? I mean, they, you know, trial I don't know court why and, you're here. The trial court and the... Uh, 
And the, uh, the Court of Appeals both said that that's not a violation. There's been no lease made. They didn't secure any benefits for themselves. They didn't share with the non-executives, and that was it. And, but yeah, and the Supreme Court granted uh, petition and, and heard it. And, yeah, I mean, when the appellate court decision came out, you know, it, it was in line with Havekula and some other yeah. previous, and we thought nothing of it, like, okay, well, this is just like the other ones. And then, you know, all of a sudden we get a, we get a message saying the Supreme Court's granted uh, review yes. and they're going to take up the case. And both of us at the time thought, well, that is, that is weird. You know, and I think you and I both were of the opinion we think the court's going to strike down these deed restrictions um, because that that may be, you know, evidence of self-dealing. That could be in and of itself the transaction that the court's looking at. Uh, but certainly, you know, the court won't you know won't go further than that. Is kind of what well, I think. They we didn't. They didn't. You know, in some ways, what the court did was saying that, you know, we're, we're right. In Basque, we said the executive right has to be exercised uh, by making a lease in the Basque case. And they're saying, well, in this case, by putting these deed restrictions in place that prohibited or precluded in some way leasing of the property, that that was an exercise of the executive right. And so I think even after Leslie, you would think, okay, well, you can't do anything that absolutely forecloses making the uh, making a lease, or and that perhaps is an exercise of the executive right. And there's some language in Leslie that I want to explore the specific language because I think you know, I, I think this is where the confusion really begins for those of us who practice in this area as to how do we advise our clients. And so, you know, the, the, the court in Leslie states at page 491, uh, when deciding whether or not something would constitute a breach or not, it says, if the refusal to lease is arbitrary or motivated by self-interest to the non-executive's detriment, the executive may have breached his duty. To which I say, when is the decision to lease not motivated in self-interest? You know, when does somebody ever, for like altruistic reasons, elect to enter into an oil and gas lease? Well, normally that's true. Uh, and then the term arbitrary. What, what's arbitrary? Exactly. You know, uh, what if you're uh, trying to get a better deal? Uh, you know, I thought the decision what it did do was make it clear that not leasing a piece of property can expose the executive rights owner to some exposure. And they obviously if there's self-dealing involved, uh, you know, in the leasing, non-leasing, let's say you say, I'm not going to lease, but I'll make some other kind of business arrangement with you, uh, Mr. Lessee where I can make some money and it won't be shared by the others. And, and, you know, to show that there is, you know, the court explicitly says in Leslie, we're not establishing a bright line rule when it says at 491, but we need not decide here whether as a general rule an executive is liable to a non-executive for refusing to lease minerals. 
if indeed a general rule can be stated, given the widely differing circumstances in which the issue arises. The court's hmm. basically telling us there, They're case by case, issue by issue, and you know, it, it really means that you know, for every executive decision, particularly decisions not to lease, you're really just saying, okay, well, we're, gonna, we're just gonna decide if 12 people from Kmart are gonna decide in a jury pool that this, this constitutes a breach or not. There isn't really a legal standard for determining that breach. Seems to me, and so, uh, but but I, I, and I think when you go to Texas Outfitters, you you run into the other sticky wicket, and that was this question: Does an executive rights owner have an obligation to lease if the non-executives say we want you to lease? Yeah. And does the exact, does that obligation include an obligation to lease his own his own mineral interest? Right. I mean, that's, uh, is that something that uh, that is required? That he would say, "Well, I, I would like for my mineral interest to be used in a different way, or or even not used at all right now, or subject to different terms." Does he have to subjugate his interest in that piece of property that is? in no way owned by the non-executive mineral interest owners to, to have to subjugate his interest to those people. Well, after Leslie, the, the Texas Supreme Court, I think, kind of realized that, you know, we've, we've left him a little too in the dark. And in a case called KCM versus Bradshaw, I think they did try to give us, you know, at least some sort of guidance as to, as to what, what constitutes a breach of an executive duty. And in fact, this has kind of been the standard that the Texas pattern jury charge has adopted as, you know, when you bring an executive duty case, you know, this is what you're going to ask the jury. And that is, in ascertaining whether the executive breached its duty to the non-executive, the controlling inquiry is whether the executive engaged in acts of self-dealing that unfairly diminished the value of the non-executive's interest. And so that, that is the standard. You know, that's, that's the kind of the, the, the rule that, that you have to view this, this case through in the prism. And that was the standard that, that we tried uh, Texas Outfitters under. You know, that was the question that was ultimately put to the judge was, you know, Your Honor, in refusing this single El Paso lease, did Texas Outfitters enter into an act of self-dealing by saying no to El Paso, and if, if so, did this single no to this single oil and gas company on this single lease, did that diminish the value of the non-executive's interest? You know, we felt under that standard that, that we at least had a good argument to make for Texas Outfitters in refusing this lease. Well, I, I think the, um, the significant part to us was that Texas Outfitters did not refuse to lease the interest to the Carters. They did not. Uh, the Carters said they wanted that deal at 1750. The COVID offered, uh, Texas Outfitters offered to make that deal. And uh, it was El Paso that refused the thing. It refused it uh, because Fakovic wouldn't lease his interest mm -hmm. that he had, he, you know, he owned. 
And so, to, to me, the uh, the the impact of Texas Outfitters is this: is that if you own executive rights over your own interests and the interests of others in a piece of property, you have an obligation to lease your own, not only to lease theirs, if they say they want it leased, you have an obligation to lease yours too. And that's, that's the, you know, going back to, that's the Greek tragedy portion of this, is that, you know, he, he negotiated and he paid extra money for these executive rights, which if he had only bought the executive rights on that 4% interest that he, he purchased, he wouldn't have a duty to anybody, right? No, or just to himself. He would have been able to refuse to lease. And if El Paso says we're not going to take a place with only 96% of the interest, that'd be, that's, that's the it. end of the story. That's and it, right? Nobody could sue him for it unless, <laughs> unless the Supreme Court decides you do have an obligation to lease, even if it's your own property. But they haven't gone that far yet. I, I could not predict them going to that extent. But, you know, just to show, just throughout the time of this deal, you know, when, when Outfitters bought the property in 2002 to, you know, when the time that the trial happened, the evolution's incredible. You know, when, when he buys the property in 2002, there isn't a case on duty to lease. You know, there, Bass hadn't come out. There's obviously none of the progeny that came after Bass has come out. Soon after he, uh, he buys it, you know, we get Bass, we get Havakula, we get all these cases saying no duty. And, and that was the law when he was approached by El Paso, right? You know, you were, you were yes. dealing with the leasing mm -hmm. for this property. And at the time, you know, I believe that you were talking to the, uh, the lawyer for the, the Carters and you were, you were citing Bass and Havakula and saying, you know, show me where the there is, right? Yeah, and there, and there were... And but couldn't they show couldn't anything, and, uh, and basically then undertook to buy back the executive rights from uh, Texas Outfitters. And negotiations uh, were undertaken to do that. Thought we had a deal, then it didn't. The deal turned south. Uh, the uh, Carter family got worried that the language we were requiring all future leases to have regarding service protection was too extensive. Mm -hmm. And it, it wasn't language that precluded drilling on the property or anything. It's just some pretty uh, protective stuff of his breeder pens and things like that. It all comes down to a conclusion you talked about, which I think is true, is that owning executive rights to other people's mineral interests is a high-risk proposition. In, in this legal environment that we have now, uh, you what do you gain out of it? Uh, the Supreme Court and Leslie uh, made a statement that you know surface protection, protecting the surface interest, is taken care of by the accommodation doctrine. And anybody who is familiar with the accommodation doctrine will tell you that is as close to no protection as you can get for the surface owner. And Leslie came out after y'all's kind of negotiations or attempts to settle this thing came out, or kind of came to no fruition, is that right? Uh, it, it was, yeah, it, the decision came out uh, shortly before the lawsuit was filed. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, for good out. reason. 
uh, we were basically was waiting to see what Leslie was going to say, and then when Leslie's decision was rendered, uh, it was clear that there was an oblig or possibly an obligation to make the lease. Efforts were undertaken to make that lease uh, by Texas Outfitters and uh, good faith efforts and came close but no scar. Nobody would ever take it after that because the neighboring property that had been drilled had kind of condemned the whole area for leasing. And nobody else other than El Paso was interested in leasing because the Hines were leased to El Paso. And so 50% of those minerals were already leased to another company. Yes. I believe we had, we had made a deal with a different oil and gas company. Uh, we were preparing to get the lease signed, right. but they came back and said, oh, we just discovered that. And in fact, that lease with that third party company was actually going to pay the Carters more money than the El Paso lease. It was. Is that right? $250 an acre more. There you go. But that So company, the Heinz bit off too quick. The Heinz bit <laughs> off too quickly. And, you know, was, in part, you know, we, you could and we certainly did make the argument that the reason why the Carters didn't make this 2000 an acre bonus because is not Hines. because of Texas Outfitters, because of the Hines. Yeah, but the Hines, you know, made a deal they thought was a good deal at the time. I don't blame them for doing it. And uh, Texas, they, Outfitters, Texas Outfitters was trying to ride the wave a little higher, and it turned out it crashed before it got ashore. And that is, of course, the nature of the executive rights or the nature of being a, uh, an executive rights holder is you are a, uh, making executive decisions. Uh, you know, it's like if you own a company, do you, do you uh, sell your product at X or do you sell it at Y? Uh, what decisions you make have an effect on the profitability or even the viability of the company. And uh, that's what you do as an executive. And, you know, you, it looks to me like the executive rights holder now is nothing more than a signatory uh, who is, if the non-executives say, I want to make this lease, you've got to do it. And if you don't, you know, you're running the risk that you won't get a better deal. Because if the better deal doesn't come and that deal goes away, you're possibly on the hook. So if a client comes into your office and says, you know, I'm looking to buy some property, uh, I'm going to get 25% of the bonus and the royalty, uh, and they're also offering me to sell, sell all the executive rights in the property, what do you tell a client in that circumstance? I wouldn't do it. Uh, I think especially with an interest as large as 25%, you don't have to do it. And if that runs off lease activity, it does. But... Uh, you're not going to be able to, or you're going to put yourself in the line of fire for any refusal to lease, or let's say you make a lease and then somebody down the road makes a lease with much better terms. Are you liable to the non-executives for not getting the best terms available? If you own executive rights over someone else's minerals right now, would you advise that person to just go ahead and convey those executive rights back out? Well, I am that person. <laughs> what I, advice do you I give have, yourself? Well, my question, you don't have to ask me because my minerals and those minerals I have executive rights over were leased several years ago. 
and they're not likely to come back. <laughs> they're held by production in Eagleford Shale and are not likely to, in my lifetime, come back to me. But as the executive, you'd be responsible for like any amendments or ratifications of that lease, is that right? Now, uh, anything I would have to sign off on that would be for the mineral interest of others, I would. Mm -hmm. And if uh, an amendment were to come up, I would probably contact all the non-executive mineral interest owners and get their approval before I do anything like that. And so if you're not Either just that or just convey back the executive rights to them, let them deal with it. So your, your belief is that if you're going to own executive rights over others, um, you need to get them to sign off on any action that you're going to do in order to provide yourself for Sure, them. and then of course the question is if you have a fiduciary duty to somebody, aren't you going to have to advise them to get legal counsel, independent legal counsel to consult with them about the advisability of the deal and, you know, I mean, it's a sticky wicket. Yeah. And, uh, you know, fiduciary obligation is one of the most stringent obligations uh, applied by law. And so you have to be extremely careful. But, uh, you know, I, I would not, if I was buying a piece of property in the 25, 75% thing you were talking about, or if it was 5 and 95, uh, I wouldn't want the executive rights over anybody else's mineral interest. Now, there are, di there are disadvantages. One is if, you, if the owner of the surface doesn't own the executive rights, those rights over time can get extremely fragmented. You can have literally hundreds of people that have the executive rights to a single piece of property, uh, to the minerals on that piece of property. And that was, uh, was another reason why people frequently wanted to have the executive rights so it would be easy to get leased. You know, it's not a... The landman doesn't have to come tracking down 500 people and try to make a deal with all of those people. He can just come to one person and make the deal. They get everybody gets paid, but one person has to. You have to just get one signature. But that is uh, that is a, a risk. Now let me ask you this: Do you think that if you were going to represent that client buying this executive rights? that it would be possible to put wording in the deed where the reservation is contained, where the executive rights are conveyed and there's a reservation. Would you be able to word a deed in such a way to remove that obligation to lease? I think the way that I would try to get around it and the way that it, the law is open in this area is that I might get away from the executive right and I might look toward more toward the ingress-egress right stick to protect the surface of my property. You know, the ingress-egress right is the right to allow others onto the property to develop the property for production of minerals. Okay. If I can limit or restrict the ability for others to come onto the surface, you know, if I don't have any mineral interest in the surface, I'm surface only and I can keep you from coming onto the surface, I don't really care what the terms of your oil and gas lease are if you drill under the well, lease, so long as you're not doing it on my spot. What you're talking about is, is re 
retaining or having conveyed to you one stick of That's the mineral right. thing. That's right. And uh, the mineral bundle. In, instead and that of stick the, is ingress and ingress. In, instead of the executive stick, which I right. think has become much more of a burden than a right now, yeah. I, would, I would leave that stick alone and I would try to pursue my rights to protect my service under the ingress-egress stick because there's no body of law saying any sort of duty uh, applies with that stick. And so I think that that, and you know, there may be a whole host of case law that comes out in the next 50 years revolving around that right because people try to get around the executive duty through that. But as it stands right now, if I own that right, then whoever wants to come onto the surface has to go through me. And, and negotiate surface damages, limitations, things like that. Or just even the right to come on. Well, I mean, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, if I can bar you from the surface, and if I don't own any minerals, what do I care if you're drilling from off surface? Well, yeah, but if you want to come onto the property, here comes you have the to money. pay for it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So and I that think, is not money that you're obligated to share with anybody else. That's right. You know, like I said, no duty has attached to that right. And so I think that's. That's where I, I've started heading in advising clients who are buying surface-only property is, mm. let's see if we can get that ingress-egress right to come along with it. And so that's And, that's I, and if I, I was advising a royalty interest owner that was selling that property, you, I would advise them not to do I, that. Yes. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> so, and, that's, and that's where oil and gas law stands. I, right? I think, I think uh, everybody's going to have to figure out how can I get around this in order to, because there are there are some reasons why everybody should want a single person to have executive rights. That is to make the property more leasable, uh, and uh, and that everybody ought to agree to that, right? So how can you make it leasable without exposing that person who's going to be the one that has the executive right to all this damage and all this danger? And that's going to be, uh, that's where uh, good fertile legal minds will have to come up with answers. And there will be some risk in all of it. Because uh, I think even with that stick, the ingress-egress stick, uh, if you own that, I'm not sure that you can exercise that uh, to the detriment of the other mineral owners without the court saying, no, wait a minute. Where it said an executive rights holder can't do that, we're uh, we're maybe going to have to expand that a little bit to the mineral interest owner that has simply the stick of ingress and egress. And as we've seen with the executive rights, the courts are willing to dramatically and quickly, you know, evolve a certain right. Yeah, when when they figure out it's getting in the way of people making money off minerals, that's what they're going to do. <laughs> and, I, and I think that will be a good place uh, to conclude our talk today. Dad, thank you very much. Uh, you bet. You know, this has been uh, really fun. And like I said, I, the, the hope here was to recreate uh, one of the many conversations we've had about this particular ride over the years. And I'm, I think we were able to do that. So thank you very much for joining us. You bet. Us on this. Enjoyed it. Thank and, you. And so with this, that concludes the five-part series on Texas oil, gas, and mineral law in the state of Texas. I want to thank all my guests, Patricia Butler, Elizabeth Kopeski, Stephen All, Alan DeBard, and Richard Butler. But most of all, I want to thank you, the audience, for taking the time to join in our discussion on oil and gas and energy matters in the state of Texas.
The contact information for all the attorneys who have appeared in these episodes can be found at our website at www.langleybanak.com. Please feel free to contact me or any of the other attorneys you've heard from in this podcast with any questions that you may have regarding any of the issues addressed in this podcast, any of the other podcasts, or any other issues you may have relating to oil, gas, and mineral law in Texas. It was an honor and a privilege for me to get to do this, and I hope to get to talk to you guys soon. Until then, this is Clinton Butler signing off, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us today for the Langley and Benack podcast. Please subscribe to get the latest updates. If you would like to meet with one of our attorneys, please contact us through our website, www.langleybenack.com or call us at 210-736-6600.